Welcome to the Mike on Much podcast. I am your host, Mike Veerman, and I am here with my friend and trusted producer, Max Kerman. Max, what's up? It's good to see you again, buddy. I missed you. Good to see you as well. Shane is also here in the studio. We've been off for a month, Max. Uh, it's been a while since we've done a pod. Yeah, we apologize to the screaming fans on Twitter. We, uh, you know, those, uh, where is Mike on Much podcast? That was a hashtag that was trending. For, that was trending. For a solid month, I think. Straight. Wow. Yeah, I know. This has been a real groundswell of uh, supporters that, that need the pod. And we're back, baby. We're back. Uh, and even though we've been gone for a month, you're in for a treat because this is a really good episode. We are talking about vinyl. There's this new show on HBO uh, called Vinyl. It's by Martin Scorsese and Mick Jagger. And Shane and I got to go to the premiere. Uh, we interviewed uh, Bobby Cannavale and uh, Terrence Winter, who uh, also wrote Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah. And uh, yeah, you're going to be hearing from those guys later in the show. We're going to talk about the premiere. But first, Max... What was going on in L.A., man? So um, we had to take care of some business, uh, band business. We're finishing up our new record, and uh, it's being mixed right now by a guy named Mark Needham in L.A. And Mark has uh, worked with like Fleetwood Mac, Chris Isaac. He mixed the first Killers record. He mixed the Imagine Dragon stuff, Tokyo mm. Police Club, a whole bunch of things. So we wanted to do like the last 5 or 10% with him so we could do all the little adjustments. And so Mike and I and the band went down. We also... I had some meetings uh, just kind of around L.A., and uh, it was like 10.30 in the morning. Mike and I were getting a coffee at this uh, cool coffee shop in uh, downtown L.A., and in walks in Emily Ratajkowski. From the uh, Robin Thicke video. Hey, hey, hey. From the Blurred Lines video. Yes. And she was there, uh, so I was like, holy shit. And uh, Was she wearing a top? <laughs> yeah, she was wearing a big jacket and belt on it. Did, did everyone notice her, or are people in L.A.? Beyond noticing I think these things. People, I think that's why people like live in LA is that no one really cares because there's a lot of famous people hanging around. And uh, But she was with her boyfriend. They were like kind of smooching. And he was kind of an ordinary looking guy. Like you kind of expect them to be like with, I don't know, like a, a male model version or something. Sure. But he seemed to be like an artsy kind of looking type. And uh, But I wanted to say something to her. You know, oh I, I needed goodness. to have a story. <laughs> and so she appeared on Lena Dunham's podcast. Wow. You know Lena Dunham. Of course, and, uh, yeah. and, and that whole podcast was about uh, body issues. So the first person on the podcast was like a transgendered person. Another person like was born without legs. I'm getting some of this information wrong. And she was on the podcast too, talking about her body. So we were just sort of leaving as she was coming in. And, she, and I could tell she was kind of like looking for a place to sit because it was kind of, there was no more seats in the place. And so I you pulled of, your chair. No, no, I was oh. getting up. I was like, hey, you guys can sit right here. And, and then she was like, thanks. I was like, hey, by the way, loved your interview with Lena Dunham. <laughs> wow! <laughs> Had you listened to it? Oh, I did. Okay. Oh, yeah, I listened to it. Um, did you love the interview she did with Lena Dunham? Uh, I don't. Th- I don't think I loved it. Okay. <laughs> so you I, became a phony LA person. Uh, oh, um, yeah, you were there for one week and you became a phony. immediately. <laughs> and you do look skinnier now somehow. Do I? Oh, no, yeah, yeah. You look great. That uh, LA life is really. You. Yeah, I did Runyon Canyon a couple times. Mm-hmm. Did you? Yeah, which was really. Uh, wow. Which was, Runyon Canyon. Uh, sorry, just story. before you get to that. Yeah. How did she respond to I love the oh, interview? Oh, yeah. She said, uh, thanks. <laughs> and then walked away. <laughs> <laughs> so that was kind of exciting. And then um, the other thing that happened when I was down there. So Mike left on Saturday. And I don't really know. Mike from your band. Mike in the band. And I had to stay a couple extra days. So um, I don't really know anybody down in L.A. I know a few people. And one of them is our friend Matt Unsworth. And he listens to the pod. Shout out to Matt. Hey, all right. And we go over to Tim McAuliffe's house to watch the Super Bowl on Sunday. We're both like very hungover. Former pod guest. Yeah, and Tim McAuliffe is a comedy writer for uh, Last Man on Earth, wrote for The Office, uh, Fallon, Tonight Show, whatever. Walk in the room. Who's there? Fallon. Nope. Oh, f- Will Forte. Nope. Oh. Nathan Fielder. F- <laughs> 
Oh, no. To save this for the pod. That's even crazier. Yeah. That's fucking nuts. I know. So, I and Matt didn't tell me he was going to be there. I just sort of like wow. walked in Tim's house. For our listeners, Shane is a massive Nathan Fielder fan. And Nathan it's Fielder the is Nathan, show in the world. Nathan for you, which is an amazing show on the Comedy Network. And he's a Canadian guy. And he's and I think I told you about that show before. You maybe. were the first one was, to see it years ago. I remember you yeah. were like, "Have you guys watched this Nathan for you?" And you were talking about the poo ice cream. Uh, the poo ice cream. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, "What the hell is he talking?" Yeah. About? And then finally, we got it at Much, so we started seeing it. It was like. Yeah, it's like a Charlie Kaufman prank show. Like he's f- genius with yeah. his pranks. Oh, oh my god! So it was cool. So we went. <laughs> wow. So it was basically like uh, Matt, his wife, Tim, uh, Nathan, and another guy named Eric, who's a comedy writer too. So it was a very small thing. Yeah. So, but I didn't like acknowledge that like I knew who he was because I didn't want to like be the the fan. So you go out of your way to fanboy with Emily Redigenowski. Yeah, but I feel like. I feel like doing that to Nathan, not that I know him at all, would be even weird. I would have gone nuts on him. Yeah. What would you you say? I was getting McAuliffe to text Nathan to find out when his birthday is because I'm trying to figure out a mystery because I think we share the exact same birthday, May 12th, 1983. Oh, crazy. But on his IMDb, it doesn't say that. It says like February or something. Okay, weird. But I have behind the scenes footage of him. Like I went through like our work archives and watched how he acts like before and after Uh an interview. And uh, he was like, oh, yeah, my birthday. I was born on Mother's Day. He's like, yeah, it was May 12th. Oh, wow. And it blew my mind that we shared the same birthday. But I wanted to get to the bottom of it. He didn't mention when his birthday is. He did not mention it in the scope of the conversation. He stayed till halftime. But the funny thing was he kind of – he didn't – he wasn't that chatty, but he's kind of just like he is on the show. Like he is always sort of like you can see the wheels turning behind his eyes. Like uh, Unsworth's wife said, like, are there going to be any other girls here, Tim? When's your wife coming down? Like, uh, it's just me. And I am where are the guys? That was a bad imitation of her. I don't know why. She's, <laughs> she's awesome. By the yeah. way. Uh, and uh, Nathan's like, well, like, we can be like the girls if you want. We could just like chat with girls. Why do you need that? Like, just very dry. <laughs> I knew just, he'd say that. Yeah. Yeah. Just trying to. Uh, anyway, and there's a couple of instances. I forget what he said, but it was you. Could, I could just like tell. He was like thinking about bits on his show. And then I've watched uh, the most recent season since, and it is so funny. Speaking of Matt Unsworth, I, w- I got to invite him to the bachelor party. I don't know if he's going to come. So, what we're talking about is Mike Veerman, our host, uh, his bachelor party. Well, speaking of the wedding, actually, so um, Danica has like this massive wedding party. It's like eight girls, and I've got like my guys. But right here on the podcast, because I'm expanding my wedding party, Max, I wanted to ask you, do you want to be in my wedding party? Ah, really? Dead what? serious. <laughs> Shane is so mad right now. <laughs> well, I was. it gets less special the more you expand it. But I'm in still. You're, you're not losing your spot, Shane. <laughs> okay. It's not about you. <laughs> really? Okay. I'm dead serious, ah, man. I'd amazing. love you to be in it. Ah, buddy. That's so nice. Thank you. Of course. I, I'd, be, I'd be honored. Yeah, we've become so close over the these last few and years. And she has eight girls. That She's getting eight <laughs> girls. <laughs> you need, you need a- no, but in all sincerity, um, I thought long and hard because yeah. Dan's going to have eight girls up there. I was uh-huh. like, I want eight guys. And honestly, like, it was a tough decision. We have a lot of really good friends. You Great know? friends. Okay. And it's like, you you and I have become really close over these last few years, yeah. you know. Uh, back when I was in a band, we've toured together, yeah. but then we've become really close, especially with in this podcast, pod. you yeah. know. So basketball, basketball. Yeah. I'm so happy that you're you're ah, you so want to be honored. in it. Thank you. That's have awesome. we become closer, Max? Like, would I be in your wedding party? <laughs> well, if if uh, if I mean, yeah, if if I need to fill like eight just foods, yes or no, Max, yes, you're in. <laughs> Sweet, <laughs> thanks. <laughs> 
All right, that just happened. That was live on the podcast, but this is the vinyl episode, so we should talk about vinyl. Uh, our feature interview today is Bobby Cannavale. Am I saying that right? Uh, it's Blue, it's yeah, you good. said it really good. Okay. Blue and Jasmine. He's, Blue Jasmine. Yeah. He's, so he's worked with, uh, as you'll hear in the interview, Woody Allen, uh, Marty Scorsese. He's had a pretty uh, interesting career. He's a big theater guy. He's sort of had this second wind or like this really kind of big burst later on in his career. And he's uh, with Rose Byrne. Yeah. He just had a kid with her 10 days ago. I know. Pretty amazing. It's crazy. Good yeah. score. Yeah. <laughs> um, and Terrence Winter, who wrote uh, Wolf of Wall Street and Sopranos. Sopranos, absolutely. Yeah. And he wrote Vinyl. He's one of the co creators along with Mick Jagger and Martin Scorsese. So Shane and I were lucky enough. Uh, Max was still in LA at this time. And there was a, uh, there's like a big premiere that like uh, Bell Media and HBO put on. And then a big after party. We're actually going to talk about those in the dessert. But just to set these interviews up, um, so we, we found out that morning we were doing them. But Max, you'd prepped some questions that the night before in anticipation that we, yeah. they might do an interview work, with us. I was in Hollywood working on the questions. So we were ready to rock and roll. And I think I told you that morning, I was like, Shane, do you want to come produce this thing? Yeah, that was exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Went was, to the Four Seasons. They were doing it. We did it in a suite. It was our first like interview at a suite, Ooh, like a junket. Nice. It was pretty nerve-wracking waiting for them to come in and i i'm kind of like the uh social media guy oh, oh yeah. right you're taking so the photos i'm like i put my foot down i'm like we're taking photos oh, good of everybody so my plan is when i shake someone's hand i say uh, do you mind if i take a candid photo of you and then i usually I take one at the end of mike and the person uh-huh. so i try to take like an action shot and then one yeah. at the end but Bobby came in like so hot. He's just like, oh, yeah, oh, hey, where do I sit here? Hey, nice to meet you. And he just got into it. So I didn't want to pick like a sneaky photo of them actually, but I did get a photo at the end. Let's get to it. I want to start with your successful run in the movie pack. Because, I mean, this is where Martin Scorsese and Woody Allen saw you, right? Uh-huh, uh-huh, I'm Terry, yeah. So, I mean, they see you. How does this sort of thing work? Do you get like a call? It's like they saw you in this, they want to work with you. Yeah, well, they wanted to meet me. Um, I did this play, and I've been doing theater for years in New York, and well, Mother the Hat was a really, really extraordinary play, the best play I've ever been in, and it got a lot of attention, I think at first because Chris Rock was in it, um, and then the title, of course, yeah. and it was on Broadway, and then it just got great reviews, and um, it got nominated for a bunch of Tony Awards, and so everybody started coming. That's how it is in New York, right? And Broadway... Something blows up like that, everybody comes. Uh, and so that was really, really good for me because um, many people in film came to see it and, and Woody came and Marty came and then I just started getting phone calls that they wanted to meet me. And, um, and yeah, I really credit that show for getting me Boardwalk Empire and Blue Jasmine, both. Uh, without that play, I don't think those guys would have known me. When you get a call like that, I mean, like you said, you've been acting for a long time. Is it business as usual? Like, oh, another meeting? Or is there a bit of like a holy shit? Yeah, of course, there's a holy shit when Woody Allen calls. Yeah. More than somebody else, yeah. Um, Yeah, and, you know, you just, um, you just, you know, like, I've always been the kind of person to just do my work, you know, and I go by my instincts and, you know, I've made some weird choices in the past and, and not one of them has come back to really kick me in the ass. In fact, they've all been really good choices, and many of them have to do with the theater. I remember doing, I remember passing on a very, very big movie years ago to do a play called Hurly Burly. 
and it was a revival of, of a really great David Rabe play, which became a movie itself. It then became a movie, yeah. and it was a um, it was a tenth anniversary, twentieth anniversary revival of this that was very very successful in New York. We ran it for six months. It had a great cast. Ethan Hawke was in it, and Parker Posey, and myself, and Wally Shawn, and and um, and I did that, and that's how I met Rick Linkletter because um, Rick and Ethan were friends, and Rick came, and then that's how I got cast in. Um, in a movie called Fast Food Nation that Rick directed. And it wasn't a hugely popular movie at all, but it did give me that relationship with Rick. So that's one thing. And it also was the first time I got to play like uh, an antagonist, a bad guy. Okay. First time ever that I got to do that. And it was because I played kind of a prick in this play that Rick cast me like. It's the first guy to cast me in like a bad guy kind of role. Um, so that sort of set things off for me in another way. It was really great creatively for me. It started a relationship with Rick that I didn't have before that I still have to this day. And so like, I, I, my whole thing has always been to just like follow my gut in the terms, in, in terms of the roles that I pick and let the chips fall where they may. And usually it's worked out pretty good. And usually when I pick a play, usually good things happen for me in other mediums. It served I usually you well. end up getting a movie or I end up getting a show like this. Um, it has served me very well. I mean, that's a really tough decision. So you, you have the, the option of doing this feature that you said was a really big movie, yeah. and then you go with the play. It, was it agonizing at all to go, hey, like, this might be a better creative decision because I want to do the, the play, but I mean, the movie could... I mean, that's a tough decision it's, to make. it's a tough decision in the moment, I guess, but once I make it, I, I'm the kind of person that just moves, that Keep just moving. goes forward, yeah. And I haven't, yet to this day, I haven't, like, done, I haven't made a choice where I've looked back and gone, ah, <laughs> I could have done, you know, Titanic, it was right there, uh, you know, that hasn't happened yet. Um, but it, it probably wouldn't happen anyway because I, I, I feel good with the choices I make and I just move forward. There's just no point. Yeah. And, you know. With um, Martin and... Woody, I mean, they both have such distinct sort of styles in yeah. the way they do their work. What have you found that's like similar about the way they work and then obviously their differences, which we kind of know? Oh, gosh. That's a good question. Um, you know, I don't really find them to be similar at all in terms of the way that they work. Not at all. Um, they're very, very different. Um, oh, they, they're just about as different as you can get. The only thing that they have in common maybe is that they, they're both from New York. <laughs> both from New York, one's right. One's from uptown, one's from downtown. Um, that's not true either, actually. Woody's from Brooklyn, but Woody lives uptown now. So does Marty, actually. Um, that's really the only thing they have in common is that they're New Yorkers. I mean, I think it's, I mean, they're both prolific. They just direct very differently. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's what I'm, I'm getting to. Like, what would be a difference in the way that they sort of direct? Like, what's Woody's approach, say, with an actor? Like, Marty, well, like, like, Woody hires you. Woody, you go and you meet Woody, and I mean, it's different for everybody. I, I went in, I'd heard that he wanted to meet me. I didn't know anything. He's very secretive. He doesn't let you look at anything. There's no script. You just go in. They tell you the meeting might not last more than a minute. They tell you don't even take your coat off. And then I went in and he was really, really nice and very different than what I'd heard. And, you know, and he, and he was like, just looked at me and smiled and grabbed my shoulders. And, and he said, oh, you're big, you're big, you're really big, you're perfect, you're good for the role, you're big. I saw you in this play, you're really good in it. And then he said, um, he said uh, well, can you give me three weeks in, in July? And I was like, yeah, sure, what, what is it? He goes, oh, I'll send you the script. And then they send you the script and, and then you don't talk to him until you show up on set. There's no rehearsal. There's no discussion. You just, sh you just when he's ready for you, you just show up in costume, and he tells you where to walk, and 
and he doesn't really like there's no chit chat so, so all your character work is that you sort of like he expects you to bring the character he trusts you he's good very good at casting and he just trusts that you're going to get you're going to know what to do and he doesn't really like a lot of questions he doesn't like a lot of um actor talk yeah motivation background yeah doesn't character. like it doesn't like it likes it better when you don't ask questions um and then he likes to rap in time for dinner marty's like the opposite right so marty like puts you in his pocket for three months before you start shooting so that you feel really comfortable with him so like you know i'm going over to his house like i would never go to woody's house like i go to marty's house and we have a meal and bottle of wine and talk about movies and music and you know, all the things that as a yeah. nerd you what, uh, dream of doing and then you talk about the character and you talk about motivation and you have rehearsal and you improv and you do all kinds of fun things that make you feel really comfortable being with him. Um, like Woody doesn't care about you feeling comfortable around him. He just wants you to do the job. And I think for Marty it's important, it was important for him that I felt comfortable with him, that I felt ownership of the role so that on day one I would be confident and I did and he was like a master at that and he's also very collaborative you know he'll say to you you know like I don't know what do you think like he'll um, let you get into the minutiae of the character with him and you'll both yeah. sort of find that yeah yeah and Woody's not interested in that. as an actor which I mean which do you prefer do you like really oh man you know I'm like an amoeba I, I can do it I, I can do both and you'd be crazy for me to say I only like to work one way. I mean, I think there are probably actors that are like that, but like that this doesn't serve me well and I'm not into all that kind of drama. I, I've worked with all different kinds of directors. I just want to work and if it's good, if the material's good, like Blue Jasmine, the material was really, really good and I knew I could bring something to that character and I didn't care how he was as a director. I just knew um, I was going to work it out. And so I, I don't mind. I like working all different kinds of ways. Um, I'm not in this to have the same experience every time. Sure. Um, back to vinyl. Uh, aside from meeting Mick and then working with Terrence and, and yeah. Martin, I mean, how much did you delve into sort of rock and roll? Did they have any sort of like rock and roll biographies they wanted you to read to prepare yeah. for this? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, this came to me while I was shooting Boardwalk. So at this point now, it's four years now that I've had that I've been attached to this. And from the very beginning, um, I should say that like I was already a fan of reading. I've already read like I'd already read a whole bunch of rock biographies. I've got them all on my bookshelf. And it was always a thing for me, from Hammer of the Gods to the Dirt. I've read yeah, them yeah. all, you know. And um, and so once I signed on to do it, yeah, Terry sent me a couple other books to read, like Hitmen, which I didn't know. Um, there's a really good one by Chuck Negron, who's the lead singer of um, Three Dog Night. Yeah. Um, and it's all just color, really. It's just flavor about the time, about the period, about the business. Um, Love Goes to Buildings on Fire really really good book by Will Hermes that's very good Lex McNeil's book um, Please Kill Me is a fantastic book but I'd already read that I just reread it so yeah I was given a whole bunch of things to read but nothing definitive to go like this is who this guy is because this guy's a fictional character and then they and then they put me together with just a tremendous amount of resources people that I got to sit with Danny Goldberg was a really big big deal for me he was a technical advisor on the show, and Danny was Led Zeppelin's publicist in 1973. And so he, people of that time. He that, ran Atlantic Records, yeah. and, you know, he managed Nirvana, and, you know, he's still in the biz. And so that guy was, he's always been around for me, Danny Fields, uh, Lenny Kay, Patti Smith's guitarist. He taught me how to play guitar for the show, and he was a great rock journalist back in the day and was also a member of Patti Smith's band. So guys like that. They were just around. Anybody I wanted to talk to, Dave Johansson, I hung out with Dave a lot. 
Um, yeah, so I was really well prepared. You see all those rock biographies and different, I mean, were you always into music? Yeah, I always was. Yeah, in high school I was really, I mean, like, I, I was born in 1970, and so, you know, obviously I was young when this music was then in 1973, obviously, but I really, like, my first memories really were like 1976. 1976 was the year of the bicentennial in America, you know, okay. and, um, and, you know, I grew up in Union City, New Jersey, which is right across the river from, from Manhattan. And like 1976 was just a big year because, you know, the bicentennial was 250 years of the country's existence. And so there was like, I remember like all the time on television, there being some kind of something connected to the bicentennial year. There were things in the river, there were parades, there were all kinds of things. And the music of the 70s really started there for me. And then, you know, by the time I'm a teenager, 1982, 83, you know, I'm listening to music of the time, but like, frankly, I'm listening to music that was... That was around 10 years a earlier. A decade before, yeah. A decade before, which is, a lot of times we do that, yeah. you know? Because if not, I'm just stuck with wham all the time, <laughs> you know? And so I'm listening to um, a lot of Springsteen. I'm listening to the Eagles. I'm listening to Zeppelin. I'm listening to The Who and Bowie and The Stones and the, a, lot of the, a lot of Beatles. I was really into The Beatles as a kid. And so that music was just, the music was just, you know, it wasn't old at the time. It was only 10 years a tops old. Um, what do you find yourself listening to now? I listen to a lot of music from that time. Still, well, particularly right? now, I mean, y yeah, still, I I'm partial to singer-songwriters, and so, like, I'm a big Dylan fan, I'm, I'm a really big Dylan freak, and um, and I like Springsteen, obviously, a lot, and I like Richard Linda Thompson a lot, and, you know, that's, like, old music, I know, at this point, but it's just, like, unbeatable, it's so f good. Van Morrison, like, you know, if you find, like, I have friends, Randy Poster, like, he loves Van, Van Morrison, he's our musical supervisor, and he's always sending me, like, shit that he finds, just, like, rare, you know, unearthed alternate track of Van. Yeah, absolutely, you know? deep cuts. And I'm like, I love all that shit, yeah. you know. Um, but I, but I like, you know, I like new music, too, and, but even, like, the, even, like, when I say new music, like, what am I talking about? Like, Wilco. Wilco's already like 15 Ten years old. Yeah, years exactly. old. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I still think of them as like my new band. Um, but I really do listen to, now that I'm doing this show, it's just really easy. This, it's like, it's not hard at all to just put on music from that time. And like, like now I'm hopeful that we're going to get a second season. And so I've already started like every morning I put on music from 1974, which would be the next year that we would start with. Um, and so you know, I just go on Spotify and I just, I just hit, you know, I'll listen to whatever was, whatever was good that year, whatever was on the charts that year and whatever came out that year. And so like, you know, I listen to a lot of Todd Rundgren. I listen to yeah, Emerson, yeah. Lake and Palmer as much as I hate listening to that or yes, which I can't stand listening to, but I, I listen to it so that I can know and I get a feel for like what was in the air at the time. Last question. Yeah. Since we're on a time limit here. Yeah. Do you think good acting can be learned or do you think it has, is it something intangible about it? I don't know, man. You know, I, I don't know. I don't, I know I don't have the answer that I know for sure, but I also know that like, I, I can't get too esoteric about it. I, I, I didn't go and learn this stuff. I didn't study it. I was su super interested in it as a kid. I know that. I was really interested in it. And I do think that there's something in that a person has or they don't have. I don't think you can like, I know people who've gone to like the best acting schools in the world and gone to Yale and gone to Juilliard and they're not good actors. So, um, but I don't know what that thing is. I also think that like, 
like the talent to know how to walk through a door and which door to choose to walk through is something that you can't teach either. And I think that has something to do with success as an artist. Mm. And, um, and I don't know what that is. I don't know what that is defined because for all intents and purposes on paper, I shouldn't be here. It doesn't make any sense that I'm here. I don't come from any artistic background. I come from a, everybody in my family works jobs, you know, I work in factories and hospitals and shit. Um, but, but I'm here and I know that like, I know what I'm doing and I don't know how to like, I don't know how to describe it, but I do know that I have a process and I have a method and, and it makes sense to me. And it probably falls in line with how, you know, whatever, whatever, whoever the great acting teachers are, whatever it is that they teach, I'm sure I'm not very far off whatever their method is. I think I'm probably doing the same version of the same thing that they're teaching, but nobody really taught you it. discovered it naturally. I did. Yeah. How you been? I'm great. Happy to be here. This is awesome. Yes. I'm very so excited to get the show on uh, on the air and out there after so many years of doing this. Yeah, uh, we're seeing it tonight. So we're cool. excited because the trailer looks amazing. It's yeah, it's really really exciting. It's it's yeah, I, I'm I'm excited for you guys to see it. You moved out to LA in the early '90s. Yeah. But you're a New York City guy. Yeah. Uh, what was your experience like growing up in New York City? I grew up in the New York City that is depicted in this show. I was I was thirteen yeah. when this this uh, series takes place. So it was crazy. I mean, New York was a vastly different place than it is now. Um, you know, having nothing else to compare it to though. Growing up there, you know, you don't know how crazy it is until you can get some perspective on it and look back. You know, like now, and you go, "Wow, that was." nuts um crime rate through the roof uh the city was near bankruptcy the infrastructure was falling apart they didn't clean drugs Times everywhere Times square was no total disaster not yeah. even remotely cleaned up um but it was a really fun exhilarating place to hang out you know when you're a teenager looking to get into trouble there's plenty of places to do that so you know by 74 75 I was taking the subway in from Brooklyn and wandering around the village and around Times Square with my friends, and it was pretty great. I mean, it was a pretty amazing introduction to the crazy people I now write about. Yeah, well, I mean, speaking of that, growing up, when did you sort of definitively know you wanted to be a writer? Uh, I knew in my heart, probably in my early 20s, but I didn't have the balls to do anything about it until my very late 20s. I, I took what was the much more safe route and went to law school and ah. practiced law for a couple of years and was just miserable and just finally got to the point where I said, you know what, I can't, I just didn't want to get up and go to work in the morning. I just felt like I needed to be true to myself. And once I was able to say that out loud, I, I, you know, everything changed for me, and that's when I said, oh, I'm moving to L.A., I'm going to give this a shot, and I, I quit my job, packed up, moved to L.A., and it was great. Everything changed. I mean, it was so much better to have a clear mission, you know, to really know what I wanted and, and, and go for that specific thing rather than kind of just meander in a career that was kind of the safe thing to do. Yeah, to feel passionate about it. Yeah, the the it made all the difference. Yeah, I mean, I, was, I would never be good at being a lawyer because I didn't care. Yep. You know, but the writing thing was something I really, I mean, to this day, I still don't, it still doesn't feel like a job to me. This is what I want to do. So, you know, the fact that it's actually, that I actually make a living at it, sometimes I laugh, you know, so I find myself in situations, I was telling somebody recently, I was in a, you know, Electric Lady Studios watching David Johansson re-record Personality Crisis and saying, I can't believe this is my f- 
job. Yeah. I'm working right now. I'm and this is, this. Yeah, I'm, yeah, and let's <laughs> David Joanne. If you somebody invited me down here to watch this, I'd say, Wow, what a cool thing and this is actually how I'm spending my day working. It's it's pretty great. It's hard, I think, for a lot of people, uh, even creatives, to, to leave a secure thing, like you said, a career in law. Yeah. Did you have a gig lined up in L.A.? Or no, was it nothing. A I didn't know there? a soul. I, I did nothing. All I knew was I was going to make this work. <laughs> Failure wasn't an option. I was heading out there, and I was going to... I got an apartment. I got a share in an apartment, like a room, and then got a day job, sort of as a paralegal. I took my law degree off my resume, and I just wanted to spend, you know, I needed to be home by 5.30 so I could write at night. I knew I needed as much time and brain power to focus on that. And I just, I lived like a monk for like two and a half years before I got a paying gig as a writer. With um, vinyl, how did the discussion sort of start? Like you co-created this obviously with... Uh... Yeah. How, talk about how that happened with Mick and Martin and, and how you guys, you know, this whole thing came about. I was, I had already written Wolf of Wall Street and I'd already written the pilot for Boardwalk Empire probably within about three months of each other in 2007 and one night I got a call from Martin Scorsese and he said, listen, I'm doing this, this project set in the world of rock and roll, I'm doing it with Mick Jagger, do you want to uh, be part of this? I was like, yeah, uh, I thought, yeah. I might be interested <laughs> in that. I was like, uh, yeah. Uh, so, it started out as a movie. They had, um, been working on this at that point for 11 years, trying to do an epic movie set in the rock and roll business. Mick had approached Marty in 1996 and said, why don't we do like Casino in the world of rock and roll? Wow. And do a story about this record guy from like age 19 in 1959 and then follow him for the next four decades. He becomes a mogul and end up with gangster rap. So literally starting like in a doo-wop era through the British invasion into stadium rock, punk, disco, hip-hop, new wave, gangster, the whole thing. And there's a love triangle, the whole bit. So they had a couple of versions of this as a movie that weren't really working. I did my version. I think we got it to a place where we felt like it was all working, but it was this huge, epic movie. And right around the time we finished, the stock market collapsed in 2008, and suddenly the appetite to do this gigantic, incredibly expensive period piece that spanned four decades waned quite a bit. So... It felt like it wasn't going to happen as a film, so the idea was, all right, well, since we had, by that point had Boardwalk Empire up and running, so what about a TV series? Because this is such a huge landscape anyway. So it was back to the drawing board. Instead of having it span 40 years, we had to pick one era that we thought was interesting, the most interesting, and for me that was 1973. 73 was the year that punk, disco, and hip-hop all happened. Mm -hmm. And I said, for a record guy, that had to be like the perfect time. So we had to reinvent the story. That took a while. I wrote the pilot. HBO greenlit it. By that point, Boardwalk was still going. I was like, all right, how are you going to do two things at once? Well, when Boardwalk is done, then we'll move into this, and that's what happened, and here we are, finally. So literally 21 years after, uh, 20 years after Marty and Mick had the first idea, we're finally getting this out there. Had you met or had a relationship with Mick before this project? No, no. I met, met Mick over the telephone uh, when I got the gig to write the movie. Marty had told Mick about me, and then I met uh, when to his producing partner's office in L.A., and we called Mick in London, and that was, you know, trippy, just even hearing a, that voice over the phone. It's clearly <laughs> Mick Jagger. Yeah. And it was, it was weird. It was actually good, because I think the, the overload of meeting meeting Mick in person all at once might have been too much, so it was good. I got to do it in stages. So it was, I was intimidated enough meeting Martin Scorsese for the first time. You know? Yeah, I, I mean, is Mick someone that has a lot of, like... Changes? Is he, is he? He's really easy cool. To work with? He's he's so easy. He's first of all, he's incredibly polite, hugely funny, really really smart, um, really warm, uh, collaborative. I mean, really like you know, if you didn't know, this was maybe the biggest rock star ever. 
you would never know it by talking to the guy. He's so, so nice. I mean, really, you know, uh, it, it, that's the thing that strikes you about him more than anything. And, and you know, for quote-unquote normal, you know, there's he is just absolutely a completely lovely regular guy who'll say, hey, you know, sit down, can I get you something? How you doing? You know, and you, can, you know, literally, you go, God, this guy was on stage last night in front of 70,000 people. And boom, just changes back into Mick, you know, and he, it's, it's pretty amazing to, to watch. And yeah, he's been great. Do you have a place that you write most often or can you write anywhere? I train myself really early on to, to not be married to a particular desk or, you know, thing on the desk that I need or space or picture to look so, at. So if you hit a hard in a hotel room, you'll do it. Absolutely. Yeah. Stairwell, on set, you know, you have to be. If you're working actually on a on a show that's actually being produced, I mean, there sure. are times like, you know, we'll say, Jesus, you know, the it just rained. We don't have a cover set. We need to shoot a different scene. We don't have that scene written. Okay, give me an hour. Boom. Write it. Here it is. Let's do it. You know, you, you have to. Otherwise, you know, you'll just, you'll kill yourself otherwise. Is there like a process or are you pretty nimble as far as... You know, I, yeah, I, I just kind of start writing. I, I don't I don't think I've ever suffered from writer's block in any way because it's it sort of feels like a luxury you can't afford. Again, particularly if you're working on a show That's and you've got... Yeah, you got a yeah, you got three hundred people waiting for a script. You can't like be navel gazing. It's like we need pages to, to you yeah. know that once that ship sails, they start eating up script pages really quickly. So you just have to sit down and start writing. So what I'll, I'll do is if I'm not inspired necessarily, I know basically what the bare bones of a scene are. I will write the worst version of that scene, literally where it's people just talk back forth, back forth, just get something on a page and then start to shape it. It's like if you were sculpting a you know figure or something, you just start chipping away and having something that roughly looks like a person and say, like, okay, let me start from here and then just continue that way. You mentioned, uh, you know, talking to Mick was like meeting Martin Scorsese yeah. for the first time. Uh, how did that meeting come about? Had you already been, had you been doing Sopranos, and then he sort of I, I finished up on Sopranos. The idea was going to be I was going to create something for HBO. Uh, we weren't sure what that was going to be. They had optioned a book called Boardwalk Empire, which was essentially the history of Atlantic City. Yeah. It's this big historical book about Atlantic City and its development. They gave it to me. They said, "Why don't you read this? See if you think there's a series in there anywhere." So I said, "All right, great." And on my way out the door, they said, "Oh, by the way, Martin Scorsese is attached to that." And I said, great, I don't even have to read it now. Yes, there's a series in there and I'm going to find it. And I went home and I said to my wife, they just handed me a TV series. If I figure this out, if Mark Scorsese is truly attached to this and I figure it out, he's going to, they'll do it. There's no, no way they're not going to do this. So she said, well, go figure it out. So there was a chapter on this guy, Nucky, and uh, he ran the city during the Prohibition era. And I was like, this is the series. This guy is fascinating. He was this corrupt politician who overnight became best friends with every gangster in America because alcohol was suddenly illegal and he ran a town on the ocean you know, <laughs> yeah. that's where it all came from where the booze yeah coming in. absolutely um was that meeting warm i mean how was great. that great same yeah. thing and i was i was really nervous not so much that uh you know because it's martin scorsese more that this was really my idol in this business i i the, the, this is what's so bizarre about this for me is goat's head soup in 1973 was literally the first album i ever bought i was a mm. huge rolling stones fan Taxi Driver was the movie that made me want to do this. Taxi Driver is the movie that made me start thinking about cinema and 
movies in general. Up to that point, I was a fan, but I didn't really think about it. That was the thing that I walked out of there and went, wow, what was that? Why was that different than other movies? Who's this guy, Martin Scorsese? So what I was worried about, I was like, God, I hope he's as cool as I think he is. You know, all the interviews I've read, I hope he's, you know, really nice. And he, he same deal. Within five minutes, like laughing, telling stories, felt like exactly the guy I hoped he had been, and that's exactly who he is. Really collaborative, really funny. Uh, just like a wealth of obviously, you know, one of the gods of cinema and a you know movie encyclopedia in his brain, but really, really funny and enthusiastic and really uh, solicitous of your opinion and like it was it was great. It was like a dream. I walked out of that meeting. I was like I was like high for three days. It was just <laughs> great. He responded. I pitched him on the prohibition thing, which he really sparked to. He had never really done anything in that world before. Obviously, he had done a ton of gangster stuff, but never that era. And we just clicked on that right away and just started going back and forth. And that yeah, was great. With um, the stories that you tell, you know, there's, you know, you start to dealt with murder, sex, drugs, yeah. um, across the board, yeah. cinema, television. Where do your primary, like, sources for those stories come from? Are they, like, nonfiction in the news? Is it books? Is it your imagination? Like, where do you source Just a those? little of everything. I mean, I think it starts from just having grown up in, in Brooklyn, you know. I mean, I, I, I kind of grew up in and around an area that had guys who were not dissimilar to the characters on The Sopranos. Um, so sort of by osmosis, I sort of understood how those guys talked and acted and thought. Uh, just their basic rhythms and rules and that sort of stuff. I was always interested. Then growing up, you know, watching TV... You know, the stuff I gravitated to was, you know, gangster films, the old Warner Brothers stuff, you know, Jimmy Cagney, mm -hmm. the Bowery Boys was a series in the 40s, kind of comedic, but sort of still, you know, kind of had that kind of grit and edge. You know, crime just like always fascinated me. I was really interested in con men growing up for some reason. And then as I got older, I started to learn more about the mob and the Godfather certainly was something that was huge. And then uh, just something I was always interested in about and just understood when I saw the pilot of The Sopranos, like I just immediately said, I, I know these guys. I know I absolutely know who this guy is. I I can write this guy. And yeah, I think I was right. Writing vinyl, uh, you're also an executive producer, co creator. When you were writing sort of early on, did you always have like ambitions to do more? Yeah, I wanted to do my own stuff, certainly. I knew at some point it would be that's the job I wanted. I wanted to be the guy who created the show and told my own stories as opposed to working on somebody else's stuff even though the stuff I got to work on was great I mean there's no better you know as I said to David Chase you know going into the last season of The Sopranos if, I said if you said we're going to do 10 more seasons I would say where do I sign you know that said you know if, if you want to end the series that's I can deal with that too but I would do this for as long as you want to do this it was so great so that was amazing but you know I knew once that was over there was never going to be another job I could work on that somebody else created that was going to ever compare to that so the only thing that could be remotely as exciting for me was to create my own thing and then the opportunity of Boardwalk and Martin Scorsese came along and it was just irresistible and then add to that the opportunity of Marty Mick Jagger music I mean but I mean, are you interested yeah. in like the casting of it and like every little bit that yeah. goes oh, on? Oh yeah, absolutely, sure. Yeah, it. putting the whole thing together, you know, seeing that vision come to life. You know, I, you know, I always say, you know, uh, you know, it all starts with the script, which is of course true, but it, it doesn't end there. It that's the beginning. You know, those are like the architectural plans for this great big mansion you're going to build, and all everything down to the windows and wallpaper are, are important into the choices of you know what what's on the table in the room what are those props what's that magazine what 
colors the guy's shirt it's all part of the same experience the music the sound i mean you know tomorrow i'm going to go to the sound mix for our you know one of our final episodes and you know just sitting in a room with your team you know listening to these things on the speaker and like every little chirp of a bird uh is important you know it's all part of that and that's what's, it's great yeah and it's really it, it all makes a difference and it's, there's no there's not no part too small that doesn't deserve your attention because it, it lives forever you know that's one thing you know you really take away from working with martin scorsese i mean his his attention to detail is, is just remarkable i mean down to how much space is in between a name you know on a credit card yeah. i mean literally like weighing in on on that yeah. the, the respect showed to people who work on the show and every job and how important every job is it's and then again this is People will be watching these things a hundred years from now. We're watching things from a hundred years ago now, and it's this is you only get one shot at this. So let's all really make sure it's it's as good as it can be. Lastly, um, you know, from the trailer I've seen of Vinyl, uh, the protagonist seems to enjoy his drugs. Yeah, uh, something like Wolf of Wall Street had a little bit of backlash about yeah. how fun the excess looked, with maybe little to no consequences that sure. the people that talked. As a creator, you know. Sometimes, like, when you're looking at what you put on the screen, you go, man, we were making this look a little too fun. Do you ever yeah. think about the influence of what those things will have, or is that not your job as a creator? No. It's put the story out there and fuck it. No, yeah, I mean, you don't need me to tell you not to do <laughs> mounds of cocaine. Or if you do, <laughs> you know... I, you wanna, but it looks yeah, so yeah, fun. I mean, does, after yeah. I saw Wolf of Wall Street, I, we just wanted to play. Uh, yeah, no, I, I totally get it. But, yeah, I mean, it's like sort of, yeah, I... I you know, I'm, I'm just I'm just telling the stories, and you know, you should wear condoms and not do drugs, and don't drink and drive, and you know, it's all implied, you know, I, I you know, but yeah, I mean, I wouldn't, I'm, you know, I was always amazed, like you know, people, you know, say, oh, you know, you, the Sopranos, you're glamorizing gangsters and stuff. I said, God, that, it doesn't really look glamorous to me to walk, think that you know, anytime one, any one of your best friends would put a bullet in your head, that's a, I don't know, that doesn't seem glamorous because he eats what he wants and he. Strippers are like, okay, great, but overall, that's not, you know, that to me doesn't really look look really Yeah, good. I guess if you're cognizant of that or yeah. you can think that way. I guess yeah. the idea is it's like people that maybe are just seeing the stripper. And it's also, yeah, it's what you take away from it. Because, you uh, you know, they even say like Goodfellas is also glamorous. And I go, did you watch that movie to the end? Remember when he goes to jail and everybody's almost killed and then he's eating, he's living in the middle of nowhere eating, you know, ketchup and egg noodles? Like, you didn't, you don't talk about that, but you only talk about people that are playing cards and it's all fun. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know. It really is what you take away from it. And I just sort of, I try not to make a judgment on these characters one way or the other or show that they're good or bad. And it's just here they are. And then you decide. And it's amazing. Like, I remember, like, Wolf Wall Street came out and said, you know, applications for, for guys wanting to work on Wall Street, you know, bumped by 20%. Yeah. I was, I was, like, yeah. I was like, really? I was like, so everybody <laughs> wants to be this asshole? I was like, yeah, apparently. It looks like fun. And, yeah, you get to sleep with Margot Robbie and, you know, have this big house. And, you know, <laughs> All right, yeah, I guess that does look appealing, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's interesting as you know, as you'll see tonight. You know, the uh, I think the 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 drug use depicted in Wolf of Wall Street, you know, was probably more uh, more playful. Uh, this is a little more desperate, and there's a guy who's kind of really fallen off the wagon, medicating kind himself. Of, yeah, yeah, definitely self medicating in a way that's kind of painful. So, but it's still fun. I can't wait to see it. I'm excited for you guys to see it. Yeah, it's really. I'm. I'm. I'm really, really excited to get this thing on the air and share it with the world after eleven years, or whatever it's been. So that's the interview. Um, 
one of the cool perks about doing this was because we did the interviews, we also got to go to this like exclusive screening with like all these sort of VIPs. So Shane and I brought our ladies and, uh, you know, we wore like blazers. We were supposed to walk a red carpet, which is kind of hilarious. Yeah, that was very nerve wracking. To the screening of vinyl that was at yeah. TIFF. TIFF Lightbox in like a beautiful theater and, you know. Okay. <laughs> so we we're going to do that. And then afterwards, there was a big party at the Horseshoe where Sam Roberts was playing. That's right. Yes. So basically, we were supposed to be on the red carpet for like 640, but Shane and I were already pretty like trepidatious in the sense that we're like, we're going to walk on the carpet. And people are going to be like, who the hell are these guys? Yeah. Because there's people they're interviewing as they're uh-huh. walking down the carpet. But I think most red carpets, there's like three people that people actually recognize. And there's a lot of just like filler. Filler, people who are affiliated with the show. But what would we say? Like, hi, I'm with a podcast? Yeah, I have no idea. Yeah, I guess so. Really? Yeah. And it's like, how are you associated with the show or whatever? We're just like, we're just here to watch it. <laughs> like, all right. <laughs> now on E-Talk, <laughs> Mike Beerman dishes. <laughs> it's like, he came to watch it. <laughs> um, so we boogie down there. We kind of walk in. We look at the red carpet and we're like, like Bobby Cannavale's on there and Terrence Winter and like Sam Roberts and those guys are kind of waiting to get put on. And they're like, the red carpet's backed up a bit. So it's going to be a little bit. So... But we kind of lost our nerve. <laughs> so we check our coats. We go up. We get our seats. Uh, what were your thoughts on the show since you're our... Well, like, okay. yeah, not that I would want to, but I'm just saying, are we allowed to trash it? <laughs> <laughs> what are we oh, supposed yeah. well, okay, well, like, to... Do you have to let, give it a glowing review? No, let, let, let's walk through this a little bit because uh, on one hand, we you know the show is put out by Bell Media and Bell Media is, is like a... The distributing company for HBO and this podcast and this podcast and we yeah and we got you know the interview via those channels and we're grateful for them. But the reason why we have you on the show, Shane, is to give an honest take. You know, we we, we street cred. We don't want to be compromised as uh, journalists because that's what we are, right? I, yeah, yeah, I, I am. Okay, so we'll let you you know get in trouble. So go ahead and uh, and let's 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 hear what you think of it. Well, Cause, cause, okay, and I'll say this: I read some reviews, and they're all super glowing. There was forty minutes where I was just like, "Okay, this is kind of boring and monotonous." It kind of reminded me of The Big Short. Again, not a popular opinion that I didn't like that movie. It was overwhelmingly popular, so it's yeah. just one man's opinion. Yeah. But Andrew Dice Clay was f-ing awesome in it. I thought it was the best, and he was also in Blue Jasmine. Yeah. It was the best I'd ever seen him, and when he was on, I was really engaged with the the show so for that it was it's definitely worth seeing everybody in it i thought was great bobby cannavale olivia, uh, olivia wilde Wild was fantastic yeah. i think it was done really well and if you're if you're a fan of martin scorsese who directed this first two hours yeah. um it's very much him and i enjoyed it like for sure mm-hmm. okay but let's uh let's get on to the after party because i want to hear uh, <laughs> i want to hear who you drunkenly talked to basically so we go um, to the after party at the Horseshoe Tavern. Yeah, and I didn't eat either. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, when you go to these catered parties, usually the person comes out with hors d'oeuvres, but you never get enough. Yeah. And they take forever, and the shit's always gone, and you got to wait by the door where the hors d'oeuvres come out. This was the, correct me if I'm wrong, Mike, the best service I've ever had in my life. <laughs> this was one of the best parties. Like, you've done the MMVA after yeah. parties at the Horseshoe. They took down. They put up all vinyl artwork on the walls. Oh wow! All on the thing. It was catered. People are bringing me rum and cokes, wow. so it's their fault. It's well, that's <laughs> if you know me, that's not a good idea. So, but yeah, it was it was really well done. And then Sam Roberts' band came out, and they they did a forty five minute set. Like it was it was such, it was an impressive party. That's amazing. They went all out. It was awesome. So, you know, like at these events. 
I get too drunk. I always wake up with a bunch of texts uh-huh. with like promises and shit that I make. Like, uh, like when I get excited, right? Like I start like bragging a lot or something. Like, uh, <laughs> remember we played so or you played Soho House once? Yeah. And then you thought it would be a good idea. Like I was giving Nick, your band member, the finger all show. Yeah, and yeah, like, yeah. you, Nick. And <laughs> you were like, oh, uh, look at who we have here. This guy directed my one of my music videos. Oh, yeah, yeah, but true. it gave me so much attention and everyone wanted to talk to me in my own head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I got so bombed that night. I woke up and my phone was filled with gigs. There was, <laughs> this guy was like, okay, Shane, uh, we're going to have you show up at uh, 8 next Friday. You're going to film the whole thing you're gonna edit it and i had to like back out of all i promise so this happened at the soho yeah corporate videos music videos (laughs) comedy skits i was telling people like i do it all (laughs) (laughs) so i wake up after this part like i know i annoyed the shit out of greg stewart like i was just talking his greg stewart is uh greg stewart actually yeah he he's a big uh supporter uh, pod yeah Yeah. he gets his guests he he does a lot for this pod so shane what did you do to greg yeah i just I guess I kind of felt like I was a celebrity or something because people are like mentioning the pod and I'm at this VIP event and you're just feeling really like a big deal. Like talking about how we're like Howard Stern and we're authentic <laughs> or something. Oh my goodness. And I'm just, and Greg's just like, oh my God. Like I can tell, like, you know, when you're drunk and you can see someone and they're like, they're like, okay, like, you know, <laughs> it's like you it, can't it, stop yourself. Yeah. But you know, like, like you're running on some crazy drunken autopilot and you're like tomorrow i'm going to regret this so and then uh brandon canning from broken social scene was there oh yeah and mike was talking to him for a little bit and i was like i just pushed mike out of the way i'm like hey i read your book man i was like (laughs) it's like this book is broken and i'm like yeah you did a lot of stuff in hamilton he's like no we didn't and i'm like yeah you did man i read the book and i'm like telling him what he did and then i woke up the next morning with texts from brandon brandon Brendan, yeah. sorry, my good friend. <laughs> but it, yeah, so so you exchanged numbers with him. So are you working on a music video for him or something? I I know I was like trying to get him as a guest or telling him like stuff. Like I can't even say. All I know is his text was like, "This is Brendan." You're, I know I forced him, like, <laughs> like text no, me. text me now, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah you would totally do that. So too. he was like, you're <laughs> never going to remember this, but here's this. And he sent me, like, a little message like that. Yeah, nice. But I'm hugely embarrassed, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you were probably inspired by watching vinyl and all the partying and excess in the show that that's a problem too and same thing happened when i watched wolf of wall street i was like let's get party or whatever <laughs> i said let's do cocaine but we get that <laughs> that's it that's the episode uh we're so happy to be back back to the regular schedule so you guys can look forward to more episodes and more great guests we've got interviews in the can ready for you to hear we love hearing from you on Twitter. Also, rate the show on iTunes. Leave us a comment. Uh, we, Yeah, any feedback is welcome. And uh, our Instagram is going to start blowing up because yeah. I'm taking a lot more photos. Good. I uh, like with every guest. I heard Instagram, you can swap profiles. Uh, you know, on Twitter, you can like... They've updated that now? They've updated it now. That was one of the reasons why we don't Instagram enough. It's because it was just signing in and out of our Kells. Our and, own, uh, yeah, exactly. real pain in the ass. But now I think you can jump around. And where can you find those, Max? Uh, Mike on Much on Twitter and on Instagram. All a right. huge uh, thank you to Jenna Gregory. It's jennadoodles.com. And uh, a huge thank you uh, to our uh, friends at Bell Media. Uh, we love vinyl. Yeah, thanks for sending us a career. It, it was fantastic. Tune in. The Michael Much Podcast is produced by Max Kerman, and I am your host, Mike Veerman. See you next week. 
if we don't die in the weekend. Woo!